Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Um, I am, uh, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. However, before we do, I want to highlight something. If this is your first time here at Risen Church, then I want to welcome you. If it is not your first time, I want to invite you to be on the welcoming committee. So we have a number of people that are out of town right now. I love it. That's great. It's fine. I, you know, like vacationing and all that sort of thing. Um, but we have, a, a, I would say, a significant, in some sense, amount of people that are normally kind of like the engagers and the welcomers here. A lot of those people. And so they're actually not here. And so I want to invite and even empower and commission you. If you're not a first-time guest, then welcome to the welcoming team. So I want, if you see someone that you don't know, I want you to get to know them. I want, you to, I want to invite you to say hello, get their name, and become their friend. So um, <laughs> if it is your first time here, we want to be friends. Sounds a little bit weird, right? It's like, I want to be your friend. But that's actually true. Like, that is really what we do here as the church. Because the church is not just a place that you go. It's not just an event that you attend. It's not something where you come and you hear some dude talk about the Bible, right? It's not about me. It's not about the pastor or the preacher or the worship leader or anything like that. It's about Jesus. And as the church, we come together to worship Jesus, Right? And just like what we see in Revelation, all of creation beholds Jesus, beholds the Lord, and the goodness of God. And it's like, he's awesome. And then they look at each other and they're like, he's awesome. Do you see how awesome he is? And like, yeah. And they're like, holy, holy, holy. He's like, yeah, holy. This is the church. And so when you look to each other, you're like, he's holy. He's like, I know. Right? And so part of that is just the way that we engage with one another as we worship the king as his holy and sanctified and blood-washed people. Amen? So, again, I really mean it. Welcome. Um, again, we're also going to do something a little different this morning. I know that I'm coming out of the gate here and I'm just like super, you know, wah! However, this has been a really hard week. As though that's new at this point, right? Um, but it's been difficult. Uh, it's probably been even more difficult, uh, I, I think, for our city um, than most. Uh, many of you have seen or heard what's happening now in Afghanistan. Um, it's directly impacted uh, this very uh, military-driven city. Um, you've probably seen the images on the news, people clamoring for... Uh, just to get out, people hanging on the sides of planes just to get out, falling to their deaths. Maybe you've even seen people passing babies over barbed wire fences to strangers just to get them out. It's confusing, it's outrageous, it's upsetting, it's overwhelming. It's the bottom line. I, I've got, I, honestly, it just it is. There's so much sacrifice, there's so many promises, and then now it seems that so many have just been thrown to the wolves. It's overwhelming and it's upsetting, period. Like, I, how do we process this? How should we even process all of this, right? Even all of, just all of the sacrifice, all of the struggle, all of what has been 20 years, was it all for nothing? How do we process this? 
And what about the Christians in Afghanistan? What about our brothers and sisters who are hiding right now because they're being actively hunted by the Taliban? That's real. Wait, what, what can we even do? We, we do have networks and lines to many of them, and, and, and they've asked for prayer. But how do we even pray? Like, I'll be honest. Like, I'm like, I don't even know. I, it, what do we do? How do we, how do we even deal with this? How do we navigate this as, as God's people? We've been walking through the book of Revelation for just under a year now. I think next week marks a year that we've been in this majestic, powerful, God-breathed letter. And the series is called Victory Unveiled. And this morning, we need this revelation of Jesus. And the church in Afghanistan needs this revelation of Jesus. Because victory is no doubt being veiled under a physical layer of chaos and confusion. But this letter was written almost 2,000 years ago to do just that, to unveil the victory. This is why the series is called Victory Unveiled. This is what we're seeing. This is the reminder of who holds the victory. This is the peeling back of the physical veil to reveal who, in fact, holds the keys to eternity. Not just one day, but even now. So this isn't just a book about something that happened thousands of years ago, and it's not just some, about something that's going to happen in a distant future, right? What we're seeing here is the unveiling of what's really going on in the world around us even now, today, in America and in Afghanistan. So this is not some detached science fiction novel that's designed for our entertainment. That's not what Revelation is about. This is a letter of a hope designed to ignite courage in the hearts of God's people in the midst of trial, trouble, and tribulation. So, but before we dive into this, before we get into Revelation this morning, I want to spend some time praying for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. I want to pray for the church in Afghanistan. Because the truth is, I don't have the words though, right? Like, I, I, don't, I don't, again, I get overwhelmed. Sometimes, though, I've learned this. That when we're overwhelmed, when we face so much that's just like all of God is just these groanings that seem too deep for words. We cry out to the Lord. We know that the Spirit does intercede through us according to Romans 8. And yet at the same time, we also know that we can rest in the Word of God. Because while it's been said um, that Scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. And that's exactly what I want to do this morning. Because God is such a good God that he even gives us words to pray to him through his spirit and even by his word. And so I want to read Psalm 70 and 71. And I want to let God's word speak to us and through us. And to even pray for us and on behalf of the church, the believers in Afghanistan. Because whenever there is something that happens or something horrible um, goes down in the world, anywhere, our first thought should always be to pray for the church in that area because they are the ones who can make a real, eternally significant difference. They are truly the boots on the ground. Amen? 
They're the true soldiers in that area, and whether they realize it or not, those men, those women, and those children who are filled with the Spirit of God are the top-tier, well-equipped, eternally significant warriors. Amen? And so we're going to lift them up. And I want to read through, and I want to pray, or sort of read slash pray through Psalm 70 and 71. And I want to let King David himself, who wrote these psalms, to teach us how to pray. And I want to let the Spirit of the Lord help us process the groanings in our heart that seem too deep for words as we intercede for Christ's beloved people in Afghanistan. So as I pray through these psalms, I want you to notice four themes that come out, like four prayer points, Okay. The first is a prayer for deliverance and protection. For physical protection and deliverance, yes. Right? We want to pray for that. But also, and in some ways more importantly, spiritual protection over these people and deliverance for their own souls in the midst of all of this. Because that protection, though, comes through a clear perspective of the truth in the midst of the chaos. Okay? So then the second thing is for clarity, clarity of what's true, even in the midst of trouble and trial. And then thirdly, for boldness and light of that truth, courage and even joy in the midst of the trial. And then the fourth is a prayer for justice, justice to come quickly and justice to come swiftly. So four prayer points, one, deliverance and protection, both spiritual and physical, and then Two, clarity of the truth. And three, boldness and joy. And four, justice. So turn with me to Psalm 70, verse 1 through 5. I'm going to read it. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay God, make haste to your people in Afghanistan. Oh, Lord, make haste to help them. Let the Taliban or anyone who would seek their life be put to shame and confusion. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in their hurt. God, open the eyes of their heart that their delight would be turned to shame. Let their cries of aha, aha be replaced with shame and sorrow, confession and repentance, and cries for your mercy and grace. Even deliver and save them from that sinful nonsense, God. God, set the face of Afghanistan towards you. Draw the hearts of your people to yourself and embolden your church in Afghanistan to rejoice and be glad in you. Verse 4 says, may those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. That word for salvation is the Hebrew word, Yahshua, which means Jesus. God, give your people a deep clarity and focus upon your love in Christ let them see Jesus. Let them give them a vision, a deep sense of their victory in Christ, even in the midst of so much uncertainty. Fill them with your spirit that they would praise your greatness even in the dark because the certainty of their salvation and identity is Jesus Christ. 
God, move quickly and bring deliverance to your people in Afghanistan without delay. They can't rely upon their own strength, but you are their help. You are their deliverer. Hasten without delay to your people. God, we ask for physical protection and spiritual protection. Send your spirit to place a hedge around the souls of your people no matter what they face. Psalm 71 says this, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You've given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust. O Lord, from my youth, upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. God, remind your church in Afghanistan that you are their refuge, that you've promised to never leave them nor forsake them. Fix their eyes upon Jesus as their only rock-solid foundation that will never leave nor forsake them. Be near to them, God. Rescue them from the hand of the wicked and the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. And for those who fall into that grasp, Lord, shelter them in your spirit and protect their hearts and minds with a supernatural shelter that, that, and, and that peace that goes beyond understanding. Surround them, God, and envelop them in your spirit. Verse 7 says, I have been as a portent, which is like a threat or an offense to many, which Christians in Afghanistan have definitely been a threat and an offense to many, which is why they're in so much physical danger. God, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. God, fill their mouths with your praise and with your glory all the day. Fill them with your spirit to praise you and witness with rejoicing even in the face of death. God, we don't just ask for physical protection. More than anything, we ask for spiritual protection of their souls, that they would confess you and not turn back even in the face of death. Lord, don't let them be worn down or intimidated, but empower them with the witness of the words of life and truth and salvation. May they overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Verse 9 says, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. God, has the Taliban become emboldened, believing these circumstances confirm that your people have been forsaken, remind your church and everyone else that their true hope was never in America. Always in Christ alone who has promised to never leave nor forsake them. Lord, just as Jesus was mocked and hated, even having a crown of thorns shoved into his skull, they mock your people. Be near to them, O God, and deliver them. Verse 12 says, O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. My, may my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace may they be covered who seek my hurt. God, give grace to those enduring this persecution. Be not far from them. Be near to them, O God. 
Captivate their souls with your presence and love. Again, envelop them in the warmth of your embrace that they would speak and live with bold witness. God, you've brought massive revival and countless souls to repentance and redemption through the witness of your persecuted people throughout generations. We've seen it, God. You've shown that this is the way. May the clarity of the truth and the bold witness of the church be seared into the hearts and souls of the Taliban and the entire watching world. So much so that it sparks a repentance and a revival throughout Afghanistan, throughout the Muslim world, and throughout the earth. Verse 14 says, but I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day. There's that word again. There's that word. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of Yahshua, of Jesus all the day. For their number is past my knowledge. The number of things that you've done is past our even understanding. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come and I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. Oh God, from my youth you've taught me and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. Remind the church in Afghanistan of those wondrous things. Bring those scriptures to bear upon their hearts and speak them out in your, through their mouths. God, may the church in Afghanistan conquer the enemy by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And may the enemy be turned back and put to shame as a result. Just as Revelation 12, 11 declared, verse 18 says, So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. God, give them the revelation of joy and honor that it is to witness and testify to this gospel of grace. God, breathe on their testimony and ignite revival. Verse 19 says, your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You have made me see many troubles and calamities, and you will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. Lord, no matter what they face, give them deep faith and certain clarity upon the truth of the resurrection. Yeah, because of the cross, our hope is certain because of the resurrection. Our hope is in you. That for, let, let them know, God, remind them that for those who face death, for them that's not the end. That their resurrection will come, and it will come with an exceeding weight of glory. Verse 21 says, you will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed, and my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. God, give them this joy Right now, even now, God, may it breed faithful witness and boldness to love even their enemies. To shout for joy and sing praises because you have redeemed their soul. 
God, open their tongues and speak faithfully through the righteous in Afghanistan. Lord, fix our eyes upon you. Fix all of our eyes upon you in this broken world that's so filled with injustice. God, we long for the day when all will be made right and all of the wickedness and evil will be undone. God, we long for the day when all who sought to hurt your people and oppose the truth will be put to shame and disappointed. God, we cry out for deliverance. We cry out, come quickly, Lord Jesus. God, as we dive into Revelation 19, open the eyes of our ears. God, open the eyes of our heart and the ears of our hearts to receive what you have for us. By your powerful, glorious, and authoritative name, we pray. Amen. So this morning, we're going to be in Revelation 19, verse 11 through 21 which is the perfect passage, in light of all that we just prayed through, in light of all that's happening in the world and all that we just prayed, Revelation 19, 11 through 21, is the most detailed account of the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And it's the source and substance of all our hope. This is what we're longing for. And if it's not... You're destined for hopelessness because nothing else is worthy of your hope. Say hope. hope. Seeing these events unravel in our world, and, and, and it just sets this passage up because this is who we're longing for. Notice I said who. This is who we're longing for. Like in the world filled with sinfulness, incompetence, and corruption, this passage in Revelation details the return of the only true and good and holy and just ruler. And the best part of the whole passage is that he isn't only described as the good king. He is the king of all kings. And he is the lord of all lords. This is who we're talking about. In other words, he is the true king. All earthly rulers are under his authority, even now. You guys realize that? You need to realize that. And when any ruler, any ruler, be it the Taliban, or be it America, or the UK, or Australia, or Africa, or anywhere in this earth, any ruler who is out of step with the rule and reign of Christ are out of step with their God-given authority, period. Because he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords, which gives us, as his people who are called by his name, really solid insight into how we shall live in this world as we await his return. And his return comes with what's described as nothing short of vengeance against those who oppose his authority and oppress his people. Both the book of Deuteronomy and Romans declares that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Right? And so this passage in Revelation 19 describes the way that he's going to take vengeance against all who oppose and oppress his people. That this isn't our role to take vengeance. You need to hear this. Because the way we submit to Jesus, the way we operate in this life even now, is to say, God, vengeance is yours. We will now operate in submission to you, 
and the way that you love and the way that you pray and the way that you operate even in this world. That's what will give us courage to be light in the midst of the dark. Because this is our hope. This is the hope for every believer in Afghanistan that Jesus is king over our president and he is king over the Taliban. Whether they want to acknowledge him or not, he is still king. So when the Taliban says, deny Christ or have your head cut off, I pray for the spirit to fill them with the response as it was for the early church. The same as it was in Acts 5.29 that their response would be, we must obey God rather than men. It comes to bear when you think about it. When you look at what's happening in our world and you look at the realities that are, are, they're facing. Like this morning, I, I, I have one point for everybody. Like we're, yeah. Here's the point. <laughs> this is the one thing that I want you to get. If you get nothing else, our hope isn't just in an event. Our hope isn't just in an event. Our hope is a person. Our hope is the person, Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We're not just waiting for that event to happen. The reason that we're looking forward to his return is because we're looking forward to him. He is our hope. And we have him even now. And so do they in Afghanistan. This is the power of the gospel. So let's dive right into our passage this morning, and then we're going to come back and we're going to walk through it together, okay? So I'm going to read through verse 11 through 21 of Revelation 19. Here we go. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The army, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. I'm going to say that again. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Yeah. Woo! I've said it before in this series, but I'll say it again. Welcome to church. <laughs> this passage is intense. It's, and, and honestly, it's really heavy until you realize that this is the response to all the injustice of the world. 
This is the ultimate answer to the prayers of Psalm 70 and 71 that we just walked through. Like, in fact, this is what God meant when he said, vengeance is mine. He said it in Deuteronomy 32, and he said it again in Romans 12. He said, vengeance is mine. And just to show you how interlaced scripture is, that the two psalms that we just prayed through, Psalm 70 and 71, they culminate in Psalm 72. And Psalm 72 is a vision that is cast for Revelation 19. In fact, I'm going to read through it. You, I, I, this is a fire hydrant of scripture this morning, so just sit tight. Open wide. Get it in your heart. It's good. Psalm 72, I'm going to read through this real quick. See if this doesn't sound familiar after what we just read. Give the king your justice, O God. Remember, this is King David wrote Psalm 71, 72, I mean 70, 71, and 72. And it all, they all culminate into this. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his day, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Saba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. And he saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Precious. Precious. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like the Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people bless. May, be, may people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. That's his prayer. That's his prayer. And you know that God promised that man that his throne would be an eternal throne? And you know who sits on that eternal throne? Jesus, that promise is fulfilled in Revelation 19. It was the cry of David's heart, and it's the answer to his prayer. And it's the answer to the prayer of the martyrs in the fifth seal, way back in Revelation 6. Remember this? Maybe not. <laughs> Revelation 6, verse 9 through 11. Right, right, like, as the vision just gets like kapow, one of the first things that we hear is this, verse 9, it says this, Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar. So it's a vision of the throne room. He says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they'd borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. In other words, it's like an honor. Listen to me. You need to hear, I, I want you to see, there is still one very deep longing in heaven. Do you know this? Right now, all who have died in Christ are currently face to face with Jesus. It's awesome, right? But even, even in that place, there's still one real desire and there's one hope. Justice. They're crying out for justice. They see Jesus for who he is and also sin for what it is, and their cry is for justice to come on the earth. Their longing is for Revelation 19. And this is the answer to that cry. And it's the answer to the prayers of the church in Afghanistan and in North Korea and in Iran and in Indonesia and all over the world throughout the generations where believers have suffered for their faith in the true king and all who hope for his return. This is where our hope finds its substance. When we look at the world around us, the only response, when we look at this world without Jesus, the only response is hopelessness, despair. That's it. That's all we got without him, but not for the believer. Without Christ, despair is inevitable because without the living Savior, hope is dead. But with him, our hope is alive. Because our hope's not in an event, our hope's in a person. He's the only true hope of the world. This is about the physical Savior King. It's about way more than just some cosmic event. This is about the return of the person, Jesus Christ. Romans 8, verse 18 through 23, it puts it like this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Anybody feel like you've gone through some contractions recently? And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, we've tasted of the goodness of God. And we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. Like we've tasted it, and it's like that's what we need. That's what we long for. Everything else is just a fallen shadow of his rule and his reign manifesting physically upon the earth, terra firma, here in Virginia Beach as it is in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. First Peter 1, 13, Peter put it like this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be reasonable. Don't be inebriated by the craziness of this world. Be sober-minded and realize that our hope, like, set it firm and fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You've tasted it now. It'll be revealed fully then. That's our hope. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, or, or 
you know, old school, blessed hope. It almost has like extra when you say it, blessed. (laughs) Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, our hope isn't in an event. Our hope is in a person, the person of Christ. 1 John 3, verse 2 through 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, it's already, but not yet. Right? We've got it. We've got a sense of it and a taste of it. We're still struggling with sin. We're still dealing with a fallen world. We're still operating in injustice in, in and craziness. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, we set aside all of that mess because of who we are in Christ. Our struggles all of the stuff that's in this world that captivates our attention and causes us to despair, we don't, we're not ignorant of it. We see it, we lean into it, just as Christ was not ignorant to it when he walked the earth and leaned into it. However, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in Christ. In other words, for now we see in, sp- in part, and we still struggle again with impurity and sin and the fallenness of this world. But at his physical return, that spiritual reality will be unleashed into our physical reality also. And we'll be fully united with him and his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This is our hope. Our hope is the person of Jesus Christ. So for the rest of our time, what I want to do is I want to drink in the description of Christ's return that we're given here in Revelation 19. I want to just... I want to just Soak in it. We're actually given 12 phrases in this passage, which is, if you've been with us in Revelation, 12 is an intentional number. Most of the numbers, if not all of the numbers in Revelation, are very symbolic. And all of them, all 12 of these, describe who Jesus is and what he's done. So because on that day, this day that we're looking forward to, this, this, the person that we're looking forward to, The full physical weight of who Jesus is and what he's done is what will be brought to bear upon the earth, and it'll happen in unmitigated glory. He is our hope. So let's look at these 12 descriptive phrases. You with me? I know this is a lot. I'm sweating up here. It's all good. The first characteristic of Jesus that I want to feast on here is that at his return, verse 11 says that Jesus is seated on a white horse. I don't want to overlook this. Like If you remember earlier in Revelation, we got a counterfeit of this with an antichrist sort of deceptive knockoff who's on a white horse also. But it's not Jesus. What we see here is the real deal. The authentic and trustworthy king of eternity is seated upon a white horse. Right? But why? Why a white horse? First of all, I got to... Follow me, and if you believe this, that's fine. But I don't think this is necessarily literal. Like, I don't think this is saying or meaning to necessarily say that Jesus is literally going to float out of the sky riding a white horse. Maybe. He can do whatever he wants to do. If Jesus wants to float out of the sky riding a unicorn or whatever it is, he can do it. However, like, and, and, Again, to caveat that, he did enter Jerusalem riding on a very real donkey. Amen? But there is something deeper in both of those 
that's communicating something even more powerful. And I don't want you to miss it here. In the ancient world, conquerors arrived in cities riding large white horses. Right? Alexander the Great did it. Julius Caesar did it. And so this is presenting Jesus as the true king of kings, arriving as the substance of what those guys, what Caesar and, and Alexander the Great were trying to get at and trying to, to convey. Jesus is saying, they were trying to get at what I am doing now. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I am the true king. I am the real general. I am the king of kings, and I am the ultimate conqueror. So while the donkey conveyed his purpose as being the meek and mild savior, this is conveying his return as the conquering ruler and king of kings. So it's not necessarily a literal horse. It's communicating the purity of his authority to conquer. In other places, the scriptures prophesy that he's going to be riding on a, on a great cloud. Again, I don't think it's going to be a horse-shaped cloud. Maybe. I don't know. But I do know that it's not just Jesus floating on a cloud like something out of like My Little Pony, right? Clouds in Scripture represent the glory of God. It's a reference to the Shekinah glory of God that envelops him as the God of eternity. Throughout Scriptures, it's, the present, it's like that, that thick weight of who he is. And his return will be, what it's saying, glorious. And it will envelop the earth in the physical, unmitigated glory of God. And for the righteous, it will be pure rapture. For the unrighteous, it will be pure hell. Because his glory is heavy. His unmitigated glory is inherently just. Which leads to the second characteristic. Jesus is faithful and true. In a world of faithlessness and deception, this is our reminder that the only one who will never disappoint, the only one who will never abandon you, and the only one who is truly trustworthy is Jesus. Like all else will fail you. Everyone and everything else in this world disappoints. Kings, rulers, spouses, bosses, governments, if your hope is in the things of this world, then you are destined for hopelessness and despair. But Jesus never fails, and he'll never let you down. Never. Jesus himself was forsaken so that we never will be. He himself is our only hope, and it's a certain hope. Faithful and true. The third characteristic, in righteousness he judges and wages war. I, I, look at this. When rulers make decisions in this world, it's part, of, part of the issue of this world is like, I'm not sure that was the best decision. Earthly ruler who's fallen and has often sinful tendencies, right? Like, what this is... In righteousness, he judges and wages war. There's no incompetence in him. There's no sense of confusion about the correct path forward. Jesus is the path forward. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. Earthly rulers and judges make decisions based on politics and are often swayed by unrighteous motives, but not Jesus. His war is just. His war is true. And in the end, Jesus wins. 
And all who stood in opposition to his righteous rule and reign will be exposed because, verse 12 says, his eyes are a flame of fire. That's the fourth characteristic. His eyes are a flame of fire. He sees all and knows all, and he sees all the way down to the root motives of the human heart. All the pretense is burned off. There's no posturing before the furnace of his consuming fire. There's no pretense here, right? All is revealed, and the only ones who can stand are those who are already passed through this refiner's fire by grace alone. For everyone else, it's devastating. P.S. This is why we pray for our leaders. Amen? This is not one of those like, ah, they're all incompetent and can't. We pray for them. We pray for them, we pray for them, we pray for them, we pray for wisdom. We pray for them to have a revelation of Jesus and the truth and his authority and his kingdom and his goodness. And we want to see, that actually is what submission means, is that we are submitted to rulers in this world because we're submitted to him. And by our submission under them, we're saying, hey, keep your eyes fixed on the ultimate mission. And by doing so, we are actually seeking the welfare of the city. This is what Christians are called to do. Amen? Fifth characteristic. On his head are many diadems. So the di- a diadem is, is like a, a crown of authority. Monarchs wore them. So the word for many here actually means incalculable. Innumerable. Right? Innumerable crowns that represent total authority. We've seen earlier that Satan himself is presented to us as having seven diadems. And then again, the beast had ten diadems. Both are symbolic numbers. Seven points to the totality of Satan's authority over a fallen world. And ten signifies the complete strength of the beast over the fallen world. But here, Jesus is presented with an infinite amount of diadems or diadems, which means that he is the one who's sovereign and has authority over it all. It's not even comparable. That's what it's saying. Jesus is the sovereign king, and nothing happens outside of his very good rule and reign and eternal purpose for his glory and our good. This is why he can use what the devil means for harm for your good. This is why all things work for the good of those who love him and are called to his purposes in America and in Afghanistan and in Iran and in North Korea and all over the world and throughout history. This is our hope. These little nuggets are the powerful truths, aren't they? So this is the cry of our hearts in a fallen world when things are dark and turbulent in the valley of the shadow of death that, that presses in on every side. Our cry is to the sovereign Savior King. He is our hope. As the old hymn goes, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er, over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. That's enough. As C.S. Lewis put it, if this present state of warfare is worth it to him, then it's worth it. He knows what he's doing. Our hope is in the person, Jesus Christ. Sixth characteristic. 
he has a name written that nobody knows but himself. Woo! Man, when you come across stuff that's confusing in the Bible, I just, I almost get like excited. When I read something and I'm like, what does that mean? I'm like, it probably means something awesome. Right? Like, this is one of those things, okay? Like, I thought, you know, you read this, and it's like, I, I thought his name was, like, the really powerful part, right? Like, we even pray in the name of Jesus, right? How? But this is, his name is written that nobody knows but himself. What does that mean? It, like, it seems like, so, a name is about identity and character, Right? So it seems like there's a lot about his name being written down even in this passage. Like, isn't, isn't that the point, that we know his name? Yes and no. Remember, this is the ultimate revealing of Jesus Christ, who is the exact imprint of God Almighty. Okay? He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. But the point here is that God is way bigger than any of us can fully comprehend. That doesn't mean what has been revealed isn't true. What we've got is awesome, and it's going to be eternity of even just fully comprehending what has been revealed. But you need to realize that this is, this is actually a reference to, you ready for a big theological term? This is a reference to, I think, the tetragrammaton, right? It sounds like the mothership of some kind of like, you know... It's a reference to the Tetragrammaton. If you were in our community group this past week, we, walked, we talked about this a little bit. But in the Old Testament, the name of God was so holy that it was too holy to be spoken or even fully written out. In fact, the only thing we get of the name of God in the Old Testament is four consonants. Yod, He, Vav, He. It's like a Y, a V, or a Y, an H, a V, and an H. That's it. That's why there's so many names that we're like, is it Yahweh? Is it Jehovah? Like, what's up with Adonai? Right? All these names. So the, the, the name of God is a reference to his identity and his character and who he is. And what we see here is that it's so big. What's being communicated through the Tetragrammaton is that he's bigger than you can understand. He's way bigger. In fact, some people think that yod heh vav heh is a reference to the breath of life. yod That's cool. You know what that means? When people deny that God is real, they're doing it by the very name on their lips of God. Because he's bigger. He's bigger than we get. And it was a name too holy to speak because it was bigger than us. It still is. Jesus is this God in the flesh. And yet, he calls you friend. If this God is for you, who can be against you? But do not mistake that God's glory is way beyond our comprehension. If you're upset because you haven't figured it all out yet, humble yourself. And place your faith in the King of Kings. 
Everything that is revealed is perfect and trustworthy. But the magnitude of his glory and goodness is the worship-filled journey that we're going to be plumbing the depths of for eternity. Again, as C.S. Lewis put it, it's all about we're higher up and further into his glory. You're never going to figure it all out. That's the best part of the worship and wonder of the king. Seventh characteristic, verse 13. I got to speed up. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. So whose blood is this? I used to think this was a reference to the blood of his enemies. And I still do. I think that's clear, actually. Again, the image of him is that he is trotting out the wine press of the fury of God's wrath. And what flows forth from a wine press is blood. The imagery is that of a vat of grapes being crushed and the juices are flowing out in this like, red river, right? That's the imagery that we get. So I think the blood of those who have received the wrath of God is what is on his robe. But don't forget, he himself also took the full brunt of the wrath of God at the cross. This is the gospel. God became a man, and he lived a life that we couldn't live, and he died the death that we deserve to die, and he conquered death in the grave by paving the way through the resurrection to eternal life with God. And it's not an eternal life that starts one day when you die. It's an eternal life that starts now through the indwelling of his spirit that fills us and quickens us and enlivens us and ignites us for his purposes and his glory and his love and for heaven to come on earth. And so what we're seeing here is that by his blood, that's how we're all cleansed and washed. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago or last week. His robe is dipped in blood, and that's the very blood that washes us all white as snow. The Christians and saints in heaven are described as those who are given robes of white because they've been washed in the blood. And so this is, this is what we're seeing. Remember the garments of fine white linen. The saints are garments. The saints uh, are given these garments that are washed in the blood of the Lamb. But for those who don't receive what He did on their behalf, it's simply the blood of judgment and wrath. Eighth characteristic. His name is the Word of God. Again, you want to know who He is? This isn't the God of your imagination. He's not the God that you desire to meet your every whim. If you want to know who he is and what he's like, if you want to know what to expect when he comes, if you want to know how to get to know this Savior and King, you need to look no further than the Word of God. He is the Word of God in the flesh, according to John 1. So we don't worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. We worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But our comprehension of who he is must always be rooted in this spirit-filled, God-breathed word. Amen? And so it's fully manifest. This word, these characteristics, this entire book, this holy, God-breathed, infallible Bible, it all points to the person of Jesus who is manifest because it's all about relationship. Again, you hear this a lot, that Christianity is about relationship with God, right? It's relationship, and it's through Jesus who is the perfect manifestation of who God is. And this is the return of the God-man to rule and reign upon the earth physically, right? He's our living hope, literally. Ninth characteristic. Verse 14 says that 
Jesus is followed by heaven's armies, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, and they're on white horses. You get your own horse, isn't that cool? Like throughout Revelation, those who are clothed in white, white, pure linen are the Christians, again. And they've had their garments washed in the blood of the Lamb. But not only that, they're portrayed here as riding on white horses, which means you and I and the church of Jesus Christ are presented as those who are also conquerors, overcomers, the victorious ones, right? That's the symbol there. That's the significance of the horses. Revelation 12, 11, they conquered by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Here's your horse. So what we're seeing here is the glory of Christ revealed upon the earth at the head of his church. These are the men and the women and the children who have looked to their savior and king above all other rulers. And through their faithfulness to him, here they're portrayed as more than conquerors with him. And in him, both those who have died in Christ before this and those who are alive at his return and are caught up to him as the victory of heaven is physically manifest upon the earth. We're going to talk about that in the coming chapters. Sit tight. Uh, We're going to talk about it more. uh, Yeah, tenth characteristic from verse 15. Um, A sharp sword comes out of his mouth with which he strikes down the nations and he rules them with a rod of iron. So again, this is a reference to the firm finality of his word. He has the final word. It's ironclad, and it's true. It's not a subjective reality. This is the truth, and the truth is a person, and our hope is in this truth and this person. Eleventh characteristic, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. We already talked about this a bit, but notice the word fury here. There is nothing soft about this. His treading is furious. Feel the weight of that. And in light of what we just read, that's a glorious thing. Truth is truth. He's our hope. He's not weeping over those who are receiving wrath. I do think that there's some sorrow there, but at the end of the day, this is just and this is good. He's not going, I wish I didn't have to do this. That's not what's going on in his heart when the wrath of God comes. There is a righteous fury happening here. And this is what looms over the heads of those who oppress and resist and oppose the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. This is what's coming, and it's good. When we say vengeance is his, we mean it. This is why we pray for those who persecute us, because what's coming is way worse than anything we can experience on this side of his return. You will not hold on to bitterness when you realize what hangs over the heads of those who have wronged you. You will pray for them because his wrath is furious and it's righteous. And he is the one who has offered them forgiveness. We pray for them. Let it go. And let God Twelfth characteristic, verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. It's like the ultimate tattoo. King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Again, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus. He is the king over all kings. He's the Lord over all lords. He's the ruler over all rulers. Not just then, but now. This authority has been granted to him for generations. This is the authority by which we, the church, have been commissioned to go and make disciples in All governing authorities in this world are subject to his ultimate authority. And to the extent that those rulers oppose his rule and reign is the extent to which they have veered outside their God-given role. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, though, the rulers of this earth may veer, and we are to remain steadfast and faithful to our Savior and our King. That doesn't mean that if an earthly ruler, hear me, that doesn't mean that if an earthly ruler does something or passes a law that's ungodly, that he's lost all his authority. Is that what that means? Doesn't mean you just get to throw out all that you're like, well, you messed up. Ha ha! I don't need to listen to anything you ever say again. It's not how it goes. It does mean that ungodly law does not have the weight or authority of heaven behind it. But above all, we need supernatural wisdom in this to navigate with insight and discernment to navigate this world for his glory in all things. Again, I would point you to the book of Daniel. I would point you to Daniel himself, who operated and thrived in Babylon. And through his submission and his love and his refusal to leave the king of the true king of kings, his witness brought the glory of God to bear on Babylon itself. And Nebuchadnezzar himself even cried out that the Lord is the true king of kings. Welcome to Babylon. You are well equipped. Even more so than Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because you've got the indwelling Holy Spirit. And you can do this with joy. This is why now more than ever, though, we need to be soaked in the word of God, united with the people of God, and focused on the mission and purpose of God upon the earth today. You focus on your own comfort. You focus on your own stuff. You focus on yourself. You're going to miss the point. Amen? Last week, we saw the Revelation 19 opened with a vision of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Gosh, you guys with me? I, every week, man, I'm like, whatever, clock, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it opened with a vision of the wedding feast of the Lamb. It was a beautiful display of our eternal fellowship with Christ and one another in heaven as it is, I, I'm sorry, yeah, in heaven on earth. But here in the last portion of chapter 19, we have another feast. It's the feast of the birds who gorge themselves on the flesh of all the enemies of God. This is a common Old Testament way of portraying total defeat of God's enemies. Remember the story of David and Goliath? Maybe? Anybody? David's promise to Goliath in 1 Samuel. This is David speaking to the giant. And this is what he says in 1 Samuel 17, verse 45 through 48. So intense. Verse 45. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. That's intense. That's being referenced here. This is what that, that is a prophetic picture of Revelation 19. 
This is the same language that's used to describe the end of God's enemies here, and it's, the, it, it, and it's impartial. Hear me. What we're seeing in Revelation, it's impartial to wealth. It's impartial to status or connections. It's both free and slave, rich and poor, small and great. Why? Because the only thing that matters is the blood of the Lamb. The only thing that matters is whether you're in Christ or you're against Christ. There's no in-between. He alone is the King of kings, Lord of lords, and he alone is our living hope. I heard somebody say that uh, all the sacrifices that are made in Afghanistan were for nothing. Some of you might have felt that. Was it all for nothing? If your hope is in America, yeah. It was for nothing. If your hope is in democracy on this side of the planet, I mean, on this side of Jesus coming, if that's your functional savior, then it was all for nothing. But if your hope is in the king of the kingdom, if your hope is in the king and the kingdom of heaven, then all those who stood against unrighteousness and chaos in that part of the world paved the way for stability enough for the gospel to infiltrate that country. Do you know that Afghanistan is the second fastest growing area of the church in the world right now? Did you know that? You know what's first? Iran. You know what's third? China. It's almost like God knows what he's doing or something. He's playing the long game, ladies and gentlemen. For those who have received Jesus, we know and they know that their true hope was never in America. And that though they very well may face martyrdom, we know that this is not the end. And for those who have sacrificed to bring stability to that world, praise God. You brought eternity to bear on many souls. And though they may well face martyrdom, we know that this is not the end. And we know that this is not for nothing. Because we know that just as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9, that though they may be afflicted in every way, they will not be crushed. That though they may be perplexed, they will not be driven to despair. That though they may be persecuted, they will not be forsaken. That though they may be struck down, they will not be destroyed. Because Christ, because of what he did for them, death is dead and Jesus reigns. Let's pray. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan that you would fix their eyes on your eternal beauty and majesty even now. Even as they sleep right now, God, give them dreams and visions of your glory and grace. Sweep through that country like a holy fire of revival that quenches all unrighteousness. God, strengthen your people to be a refuge and a witness of hope and strength in Christ, the King of kings. God, fix their eyes on you. Lord, we pray as the Apostle Paul prayed in 2 Corinthians 4. God, don't let them lose heart. Though their outer self may waste away, let their inner self be renewed day by day. Remind them that this light momentary affliction is preparing for them an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. God, call them to look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And remind them that the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Be near to them, O God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can stand for worship.